And we are live back with another episode of Shifting the Narrative on Everything Autism. I'm Torin Kearns, and as usual, I'm joined by the autism sage herself, Mama Baden. How are you? I'm good. I can see the sun, so that's always great for me. Yeah, lucky you. I'm up, I'm up in Jersey. It hasn't passed yet. It's been nothing but darkness for like a week. No. It's like being up, it's like being in upstate New York all over again. It's this post-hurricane weather traveling over the country. It's awful. It sucks. It's just been raining for three straight days. Terrible for your mood. Terrible for well, anything. I know. I know. I actually had a productive day today because the sun came out. But we are here. And we are going to provide some really good stuff for our listeners. What do you have in mind today, Torin? Well, I had an idea. So I was listening to, I listen to a lot of fitness podcasts, which is kind of weird for someone who's as out of shape as I am. But I was listening to one and it was, it's these, these two doctors called the Docs Who Lift podcast. And it's these two doctors and they had an episode. They're these two brothers. And they basically, one of them created a series of case studies, cut studies for obese patients. And they sort of just bantied about ideas on how to treat these various imaginary patients in these case studies. And I was like, that's a pretty good idea. So what I was so what I, what I suggested to Stacy was I'm gonna write up some case studies, some imaginary autistic patients, for lack of a better word, clients, however you want to put it. And I'm gonna ask Stacy how she would deal with these. What? All right. I'm ready. Ready. Let's go. Let's go. Let's see. The I, first find one it, is... I find it humorous that we have to make up cases when there's already like 500 million cases, but I'm sure that you've got some <laughs> challenges for me. <laughs> oh, definitely. I have some, I have some easy ones. I had some tough ones. Um, I, right. try, I tried to vary as much, but I just want to sort of condense this, condense like basically what you do. Cause essentially this episode is what you do for a living. That's true. It's like a so, I, so. So I wanted to condense it down, give the audience an idea. Maybe some of the audience will resonate with some of these case studies. I tried to make them relatable. Of the course. best way you can make autism relatable because it's hard because it's so varied. Yes. But uh, let's get to the first one. We can go right. over and discuss it. All so right. autistic girl, seven, seven years old, semi-verbal. Mom reports that daughter's speech, along with her alertness and ability to follow directions, has regressed recently for no apparent reason. Daughter's school, special education, is complaining about her sudden lack of alertness and more frequent meltdowns. Mom wants her to be more consistent with her speech, attention, academic performance. What would you do for that family? So first off, when there is a shift, a change in either skill set or demonstration of a skill set or new behaviors, we always have to look at the reason. Now, most teachers, parents, adults in the situation say it's happening for no reason. <laughs> That's because they're not looking at it from an autistic lens, right? They're looking at it from, I don't see anything from my neurotypical lens that says there should be any reason why my child should be upset, right? That's what they're doing because we all look at things from our own perspective. But I usually start with, has anything significant changed? And typically parents will say, no, I can't think of anything. Then I start prodding. Is there a new teacher? Did they change the bulletin board outside the classroom? Is there a new student? Did a student move? Those little things like the blue chair being replaced by the red chair can be a significant change for some kids. So first I look into change. Um, and interestingly enough, when I will ask about change possibilities at home, it will you know, be or should I say the parents will report, um, no, there's no changes. We do the same thing. And then I say, um, so nothing has changed. No one's coming to visit. There's no new neighbor. And they're like, no, you know, dad started a new job. Okay. So dad started a new job. What did dad do differently that, well, dad used to, you know, fix breakfast, but now he has to leave early. Okay. That is a change that can trigger some discombobulation, right? Where you see skills, sort of going behind the scenes because they're just not really sure how to deal with the transition of the change. We didn't prepare them because we didn't know it was going to be significant. Now, the other part is, and if I knew this child a little bit better, 
Um, and this is something that will be helpful for a lot of parents. When you have kiddos that are making significant strides in communication, where they are socially engaging, they are using more words, they are using their AAC device more, which means they have to do what? Get into personal space of other people. They have to go in and communicate. They have to respond. That's a lot more to process than they were processing before they were communicating so much. So that means we need to up their sensory input because, or their sensory supports, because they're having to process more by communicating more. The last time, the last point I'll make is a lot of times when kids are finishing potty training or having a molar tooth come in around six or seven, you got to check those molars. Sometimes those molars are bothering them. They can't tell you, um, but potty training strides, um, or if you're working on solidifying potty training, then sometimes they have to kind of push one skill to the side so they can work on that potty training. And then they bring that skill back. It's like, if you were to, uh, I guess a scenario would be if you were going to school and getting training, maybe you were taking classes full time and then you um, have a baby. So you cut back your hours and then you come back to your regular hours. And maybe that's a horrible example, but the concept is that when children progress, and this is all children, but specifically our children, it's very noticeable because we're looking with a fine tooth comb for every little thing, right? And anytime we see something inconsistent or missing or inefficient, we think, oh my gosh, regression. It's not regression. I will tell everyone and anyone, children don't lose their skills unless something significant, like significant trauma happens. They just are not demonstrating at that time because there's other stuff getting in the way. So that's my general response to that question. I, I, I knew you'd go off on these. Um, one of the things I've also mentioned is burnout. Mm-hmm. When we think of burnout, we generally think yes. of autistic adults, but burnout can happen in children. It's just children don't, in general, not just autistic children, but children in general don't, someone who's seven, in the case study, the, the girl is seven, aren't going to have the articulation skills or the interoceptive ability to mm-hmm. be able to tell you that they're in burnout. Yes. What will happen is they'll just start regressing on things. Yes. And burnout can be caused for multiple things, such as, as you mentioned, changes, just sometimes if they're towards the end of the school year. I know in New York, even seven-year-olds are dealing with state tests now. Mm-hmm. So stress from tests, stress from, from, from anything could yes. cause that and can cause regression in things such as speech and attention and things mm-hmm. like that, as it does with adults. Yes. So that's one I would also like to mention. But yeah, you brought up some good points. You brought up some points I didn't even think of. Because I didn't think of it might be that there's something that's changed in their environment or a series of things that have changed. Because it's hard. And I want to get it across that we're not blaming parents for allowing things to change because it's impossible to control all variables. Things will change no matter how hard you try. Just do Mm -hmm. the best you can and understand that if there are changes, like dad got a new job, we Mm had to move, the school changed classrooms, yada, 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 that there might be some effects on your autistic child mm-hmm. and to just plan and adapt accordingly to let the school know. In this case study, the child is in special ed. So if it's a halfway decent school, they should be able to, they should be familiar with this and understand this. Mm-hmm. If you're in public school or inclusion, like some of our other case studies, uh, let your God be with you. But um, that's all I really have to say on that one. Do you have anything else? No, I just think it's important to reiterate that it's not just no reason. There's always a reason. You just may not be able to figure it out. But the first thing I always look for is any changes. And we take for granted that things like dad going to work early is a change. We just like, oh, dad's going to work early. But for some kids, it's like, that messes up their routine of dad usually fixes my cornflakes or dad gives me hugs and tickles in the morning for sensory input. And now he's not able to do that. And that's really confusing for a lot of kids, but for our kids, it's it's the difference between a meltdown or not a meltdown. And so that's why we use visuals to communicate change. All right. What you got next? What you got next? I I know I said I was done, but (laughs) I want to add one more thing. I would also like to add that at least in my experience, and maybe you have a different experience, small changes. I don't want to scare parents into thinking tiny changes can cause these massive meltdowns. In my experience, it tends to be a compound effect. 
more than unless it's something unless the sensory issue it's really harsh like if they have issues with blinking lights for example and you sit in the restaurant like i have a friend whose nine-year-old daughter had meltdowns they sat in the restaurant and there were some blinking lights outside and they didn't move her seat so she couldn't see the lights because these people yeah. aren't very intelligent if i'm just being honest um i shouldn't even say friend it's someone i don't really associate with because i don't I have a lot of respect for them but they didn't think of just asking them to change their seats because of annoying blinking lights and she had meltdown. So it's generally compounding things. So like dad got a new job and then the class, then they had to switch classrooms for the day because there was flooding in one of the classrooms where they have a new substitute teacher who doesn't follow the routine at all. So that's actually multiple changes in one, new teacher, new routine. The, the kids are sitting wherever they want because kids will do that once they realize mm -hmm. that, that they have a substitute teacher, yada, yada, yada. All of that combined caused meltdowns. It's yeah. generally, in my experience, not one small change. Like, it's raining outside for the first time this week. I guess they're going to have a meltdown. Yes. I don't want to scare parents like that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, let's get to the second one. So we have autistic boy four, mm -hmm. nonverbal. Mom reports that her son has entered a phase where he cruises around the house, placing his hands and face on various smooth surfaces. Mm -hmm. He is a particular fan of windows and television screens. At times, his behavior becomes destructive. Mom notes one instance where he poked a hole through the mesh of a speaker and tore the mesh off. Mom is embarrassed by this behavior and wants it to stop. So what would you do for this, for, for, for this particular family, Stacey? Um, it sounds like the kiddo is seeking routine and sensory regulation. Yeah, I kind of um, set that one up for a T. I kind of set that one up on a T for you. Yeah, it sounds like he's, um, this little kiddo is seeking, um, but can't communicate what he needs. So he's seeking to try to get whatever it is that he needs. So of course, my recommendation would be, let's look at his sensory profile, right? If there is none, then we need to do one. Um but typically for kids who are seeking, um, for those of you out there listening, those are our kids that are seeking for the sensory system that is under responsive. And just for those of you who may or may not know, there are eight different sensory systems. They work together and integrate, but they also have their own sort of unique individual purpose. And you can have three of your systems under responsive and the rest of them over responsive, or you can have all of them under responsive or all of them under over responsive. Um, everyone's different. So it sounds like this kiddo needs someone to really look at, um, you know what, get speech and OT in place, good speech therapy and OT in place, a good sensory profile, implement sensory activities and get a method of communication in place. So and what exactly what is a sensory profile? Ah, so a sensory profile is like a profile. It's like a, a look at your child's sensory system and how it sort of processes information, but also what's really working very efficiently and what the struggles are, right? And it's not so much that I feel, because I, I don't like to make it seem like the sensory system is broken, right? It's not that their system is broken. It's that <laughs> the environment is not conducive for their sensory needs. Um, and I say all the time to parents, autistic, your child's not broken. It's the environment that needs to be changed. So if we think about what this kiddo is doing and looking at his sensory profile, the profile gives us an idea of what they need um, so that we can help them regulate so that they can attend easily, communicate more effectively and efficiently. And like all of us, if you're regulated, then you are going to do a little bit better in your day. And the purpose of the sensory profile is so that you know exactly what you need to provide for your child. And yes, it fluctuates. Yes, it changes. I think that's one of the frustrating things for parents is it doesn't stay the same because children grow. Our bodies change and they do different things. So so, so you want me to reward the behavior? Um, I don't look at it as a behavior. I look at it as the child is communicating a need and we need to figure out what he needs. Because my need. my pediatrician says I should buy one of those little water guns and spray him like you do with a dog Yes. every time he does that. Well, we won't recommend that. We'll recommend giving him the sensory input that he needs. Um, and I don't know, does he, is he, 
You're going to receive an email for my power trip and pediatrician okay, tomorrow. Okay, good. Well, you know what? I will say I did receive an email from an actual doctor. I know. You told me. That's why I brought that up. <laughs> and um, questioning my advice that I, or recommendation that I gave to a client. And I reached out to that doctor and said, I would love to sit at the table and have a conversation about the reasons why. They ever get back to you? Of course not. Of course. Of course not. Okay. And I remember that was like a, a month ago. Um, yeah, that's. That's I, I kind of set that one up on a tee, but mm -hmm. I thought it was important because sensory seeking behavior often gets defined as, well, yes. behavior, which yes. I disagree with, and as negative behavior, because yes. sometimes it can become destructive, such as poking a hole in the mesh with speaker, and, which is yes. may or may not be something I did when I was four years old. And, ah, even but, like getting into the lotion. It's like, oh my gosh, they're they're emptying all my lotion bottles. They're playing in my makeup. They are sensory seeking. They're not misbehaving. So we need to give them that input. Yep. Exactly. I, I the glass thing I just came up with, but I'm I'm sure it has to be a thing somewhere. Oh, because I'm just I'm just that. picturing a little kid just putting yes. his face on the glass constantly yes. and smudging everything and some like hypochondriac mom just going crazy because everything is smudged all the time. My favorite is kids who lick all the surfaces, especially during COVID. <laughs> oh God. Well, my thing is I was, this is, I hate to admit this because I feel like a real scumbag. When you know you want to go to the grocery store and, and, and the supermarket and you have like the, the fresh ground beef and chicken, it's like wrapped up, like, mm -hmm. like a uh, sealed. Mm -hmm. I purposely poke holes in all of them. As a as a little kid, which most oh, fucked up thing you can do because that makes it go bad. So funny, kids are just funny. I was I was such a scumbag as a kid. Jesus, like you were just a kid. I don't Why know if that counts curious? as sensory seeking behavior or just because I was an asshole, but it might have been a little bit of both. But you know, boys... definitely, de definitely some 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 asshole in there. I forget how old I was. I would have been like six or seven at most. I don't... So Torin. Children are curious, right? It's like, ooh, what would happen if I threw this in the air? I don't know. Oh, darn, I shouldn't have done that. It broke. Mm. Like, that's like, and you can't leave. I was just having a conversation with a parent and she was saying something about what her husband did. And I said, you can't leave three male brains in a room alone. Oh my gosh, they're going to come up with all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, do. you really can't. Like, that's just straight <laughs> up. Like, that's real talk. You can't. Three male, so two kids and the dad. Who knows wait, what so, you're going to come home wait, to? Wait, so it was, two, it was the two sons and the dad? It was the son and the dad, yes. I was, like, was going to say, because if, 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 if it was at a third male, the house would have caught fire. Oh, gosh. It's crazy. It's crazy. We love our dads. We love our dads. Especially like three autistic males in a room alone. The house is guaranteed to catch fire. Like something will catch fire. Can't even imagine. Can't even imagine. All right. What you got next? Okay. Autistic boy nine, fully verbal. Dad reports recent signs of depression. Son tries to avoid going to school, mainstream public school, so not inclusion, just like mainstream, like 40 kids classroom, that type of thing, and complains of bullying. Doctor suggests antidepressives, depressives, depressed, yeah, I, I misspelled that, depressives <laughs> to help with symptoms. I cannot read. I have like a third grade reading level. Dad has concerns about putting his son on meds, but meltdowns and lethargy is affecting his academic performance and making home life difficult. So what would you do for that? So number one, um, we need to really be cautious about labeling and diagnosing informally mental health things like depression and anxiety for children, because when we keep saying it out loud, saying it out loud, like, oh, it's depressed. Oh, are you depressed? Oh, are you anxious? Like, stop saying that to a three and four-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old, right? Seven-year-old, eight, nine, 10-year-old. Stop projecting our adult labels on children when they have not even had a chance to get intervention. So that's my first um, hair on the back of my neck raising as you read that scenario. Secondly, um, his child has not been diagnosed with depression. He just does not want to go to school and it's pretty simple. Um, school's just not working for him. So we need to change the environment. It's really that simple. The child doesn't need to be medicated because he's being in, in bullied at school or in a school that's not supporting his needs. We're going to medicate the child because the school's not providing a supportive environment. Yes. No, we're not. Yes. That's exactly what they we're do. Not. Yes. I know, but we're not, we're not, we're not, we're not going to do that. 
we're going to actually do the work. We're going to figure out what's going on. And if the school cannot provide a safe environment for the child, then we need to make some tough decisions. Well, I'm less, I would be less worried about the diagnosing of autistic, of, of adult symptoms to a child because signs of depression do show up in children, such as yes. lethargy, um, increased rates of meltdowns, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, lack of interest in things they're normally interested in. Children can be depressed. I would be less worried about that personally mm -hmm. and more concerned about the antidepressants simply because it seems like the issue is in the case study. Mm -hmm. So he's at a public school, mainstream, so his needs are not being met and he's being bullied. And probably badly if he doesn't want to go to school. So I think I agree with you what that needs to be solved because that is probably causing the depression. And if that's solved and he's still having the symptoms, then he might actually be struggling with some sort of mental health issue. Mm -hmm. But first, I, I would def I agree with you. I would definitely look into schools. Obviously, I freaking wrote these, so I already had my opinion on these. Oh. But um, I would look into the school. And by looking into the school, I mean get him the hell out of that school because mm -hmm. mainstream public school, there is no looking in. Like, they're not going to do shit. Like, they're not. Unless you're unless you're rich, unless you live in the rich area where they actually care about the kids because they have money to care about the kids. Yes. They're not going to do shit. Yes. So that means get your kid into inclusion, get them preferably into special education entirely or homeschool and get them the hell out of that school. Yes. That's what I would suggest for that particular scenario. I would be very wary. And we did a whole episode on this a few weeks back on, I forget what it was titled, but it was a few weeks ago on should you medicate your child your autistic child that actually I don't know why like my voice like got deep for no reason should you medicate your autistic child I think that actually was the title of it so look that up and we go in depth on this but the TLDR is no no unless absolutely necessary and probably not on psychi uh, psychoactive drugs like antidepressants yes. and antipsychotics because those can alter brain chemistry and mess their development mess their ability to self-regulate as they get older but that that that's sort of the short version of that. But um, you have anything else, or should we get to the next one? Nope. I just think I just want to remind the listeners that when children are struggling because the school environment is not supporting their needs, or they're not in a peer safe environment, then we need to change the environment, not have expectations for the child to deal with it, and certainly not medicate because the adults in charge don't want to do the work. But that's just me. <laughs> Go ahead. No, I, I, I I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, that that you pretty much summed up what I was gonna say. So instead of being myself, I was move on to the next one. All right. So we have an autistic boy three. He's they don't know if he's nonverbal or he's just not yet verbal because he's three. Mm -hmm. Mom reports issues with potty training. Son has demonstrated competency using the toilet, but only with the bathroom light turned off. He refused to use the toilet, the lights on. A family member suggested turning the light off when he's in there, but mom was apprehensive, stating, quote, unquote, who shits in the dark? <laughs> mom wants son to use the bathroom like, quote, unquote, normal children his age. So what would you do for them? Okay, so... What I'm hearing is the child will go to the bathroom in the toilet when the light is off. Yes. Yes. That's it. He, has, he doesn't have an issue. It's only when the light's on he has the issue. Okay. So it's really simple. We're not going to turn on the light. And if mom feels uncomfortable with the child being um, there in the dark, we have a couple of scenarios we can do to balance it out so everyone's happy. One have a light outside in the hallway, right? And keep that on. You can turn that on and they can go in the bathroom. It's going to be enough to see, but not if that's not possible because of the location of the bathroom. I've had kids that just go in with a flashlight, like, or a nightlight. Like I was going to say, one of those, like, I don't know, I'm old, so I don't know if they still make them, but those like little plug-in nightlights. Yeah. Or sometimes you can put on the floor, they have those little stick on motion lights. And so it gives enough light where it's not, sometimes it's the light from the ceiling that is glaring. And that's a real visual distraction. I mean, the cell, you can use a cell phone now. Well, but our children should not have cell phones in the bathroom. And that's yeah, just, that's a good point. That is a very good point. Um, 
but I think it's a matter of just changing the lighting. So either the light from the outside or have one of those stick on floor lights or the kid can bring a flashlight and if he needs to see, but I don't think the flashlight, I think just have an alternative light because sometimes it is the light. That's the problem. Sometimes you just have to change the light bulb, make it a softer light or a blue light. Some kids can do well with that. Well, judging by the way I worded that, you can tell <laughs> the actual issue here isn't the reason he won't go to the bathroom because exactly. that can be solved in 15 seconds. Yes. The issue is the, the mother. Needing to be and empowered. that's why I put that in there. Yes. Because the, the mother be has certain expectations mm -hmm. that aren't lined up. So this yes. mom would probably say something along the lines of, but that's not normal. And he needs to be able to use the bathroom like a normal person. Yes. And normal people use the bathroom with the light on. Well, the I don't know. The... People do all kinds of stuff in the bathroom. We don't know what they're doing when they go sit on the toilet. We don't know. I don't what know what other doing. people do, but like normal people <laughs> use it with the, with, with the light on. And what's probably doing it for this kid is most bathrooms have fluorescent lights, white fluorescent lights. It can be very, yes. so normal people. So the way I wrote that is indicating there's something wrong with the mom. This is one of those parents that doesn't want to make accommodations because they were taught how to do things a certain way. And the accommodations is sort of not only different and goes against how they think things should be done, but it's also an admission their child isn't quote unquote normal. That's why I said quote unquote normal. Yes. So what I want to talk about is how do you deal with a parent like that? Because in this case, the case study problem is not the child, it's the parent. Mm -hmm. I, well, I mean, to be fair, that's almost always the problem is the parent. Of course, of course. But in this one, it's obvious. It's obviously the parent. So I would probably explain to them the possibilities of why it may, clearly there's some kind of sensory visual overload that's not working for this kiddo, right? He is not able to process the light or maybe he doesn't want to see the poop. Maybe he doesn't like seeing his toes or his legs. Who knows? The reality that's of it a is- good, That's a good point too. I didn't think of that. Yeah. Some kids don't like to see their poop in the toilet. I have lots of kids that poop and run out because they don't want to see the poop in the toilet. Um, they say it's disgusting. Yeah, it is disgusting. I don't think any of us really like to look at poop in the toilet, but sometimes we have to get up, flush the toilet and we see it. Right. So I think it's a matter of me helping the parent understand the sensory component, the possibilities of why, but more are more about helping them understand their child's perspective. And then typically I use a lot of analogies to help parents connect that they experience similar things. It's just not to the level of where their child would be because they're not autistic. You know, it's a difference between a meltdown or not or frustration. But what would you do though to parents who saying they want their kid to use the bathroom? Like they'll probably oh. argue what happens when they go to school, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when they go to school, we may or may not have to adjust the lighting at school as well. I adjusted the lighting in my bathroom, in my school, my classrooms. All of my lights were adjusted in all of my classrooms and all of the bathrooms my children had access to. So once again, if we adjust the environment, the ones that we have control over, then it's easier for our kids to navigate it. Um, and the other, the other part is sometimes parents don't get it. Sometimes parents don't want to get it. Sometimes parents have a lot of cultural pressure, family pressure, and they are determined to make the child use the bathroom with the light that they already have in place and they just have to live with the rest of their lives their children not going to the bathroom <laughs> that's actually what i did as a kid um, process of I elimination did, i didn't necessarily i don't remember having problems at home but i do remember some bathroom lights in school would bother me when i was a little kid so i just oh, yes. i'd walk in to shut them off mm-hmm mm-hmm I use as much natural light as possible with my students um, because I know it's easier for them to process. But what would you, I still, here's the thing though. Okay. And I, I know I keep asking the same nope. question. Push, push, Because there may not be an answer for this. But the issue is not how to solve the problem. The issue mm -hmm. is how do you get the mom to a point mm -hmm. where she understands she needs to make these accommodations? Ah. Okay. So sometimes, depending on the parent, sometimes there are parents that I'm like, mm, doesn't really matter what I say. They have an agenda. They're going to keep this agenda and they're going to realize 10 years later, their agenda was wrong. And there's nothing I can do about that. Unfortunately, sometimes it rolls that way. Um, most of the time I can get an analogy. Um, for example, I may say to a parent, have you ever gone to 
an event or a concert and they had a lot of really bright lights and they were shining in your eye and you were like, oh my gosh, can we move our seat? Oh, you moved your seat. You accommodated for yourself. Your child is asking to accommodate his needs. Another way that I would approach it is I, depending on my relationship and how long I've been working with the parent, I will just simply say, trust me for seven days, do it my way for seven days. I'm asking for seven days, three days, five days. How many days can you give it, give me to do it, the strategy that I recommend. And when they say, okay, I'll try it for three days, then they come back. And then I hear typically my wonderful dads will say, you know, you were right. It worked really. Did you think that I was going to give you wrong information? And the dads are like, well, you know, I just didn't think it could work. I understand, but I appreciate you trying. And then we're done. So it just depends on the parent. Some parents are very, very um, caught in their own stuff. Some parents are not. Um, and I and I'm say this in terms of I'm not saying parents are not that I'm saying this. I've had parents tell me. I do not have the ability to advocate and push back for my child. It has to be done this way or my mother-in-law is going to be mad at me. And they don't have the oomph to say, mother-in-law, I'm not going to do this. It makes my child melt down. And sometimes, unfortunately, children have to live in traumatic experiences because no one's willing to advocate for what they need. And, um, you know, it's unfortunate, but it's life. That's an excellent answer, actually. That is like the perfect answer that I think I was looking for mm -hmm. to help both parents and people who work with parents who might mm -hmm. be listening get an idea how they might be able to work with someone who's a little resistant, mm -hmm. a little resistant to implementing change. Because as you know, some people are just, they're just lost causes. I hate to say it. Their kids, their, their kids are kind of screwed. I feel bad for them. And, because they're, they're, they're not going to do the things they need to do for their yeah. kids. And, and Torin, you know, part of that is, you know, for myself as a coach, it's understanding that's where establishing a relationship with clients comes into play. Like understanding what, why is it so difficult for you to change the light? Tell me, help me understand why. Like, sometimes I feel like I should get like a freaking honorary degree in therapy because I feel like a lot of it is me helping parents work through their own trauma um, not that I'm an expert on that, but I do know that parents, most parents genuinely want what's best for their child. They just have things that don't allow them to do it. And sometimes they have their own anxiety, but I find that the majority of parents are not able to provide what is needed or make changes and adjustments because of cultural and family pressure. It's just it's almost like a religion where it's relentless. It's been ingrained in them that this is the only way you can do something. And it's just hard to shift. It really is hard to shift. Um, and there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure. Um, you know, some cultures like shame parents. Like when I talk about shame, I mean shame, like you are no longer even existing and they don't even talk to you anymore when you advocate and push back against someone in the family so it's tough it's tough it's really tough it is. it's actually interesting you mention that because it gets us to our next one Ooh. um or so i'm glad you mentioned that. autistic girl six years old public school inclusion basically she, mom reports she has an issue in church they're part of a religious group they're, they're evangelicals for lack of a better word Mm -hmm. And so church is a big part of their lives. And she has a tendency of vocal stimming mm -hmm. in church, which is not only distracting, but very, very embarrassing. Mm -hmm. uh, they're a very tight-knit community. So everyone in the, in the, not just the church, but in the neighborhood they live in, mm -hmm. sort of looks at her funny as she's the one that has the little girl who won't shut up mm -hmm. in church and is very disrespectful. What would you do for this family? Who? This is a scenario that I have been presented with on several occasions. I feel like it should be a game show. I should press a button. Bop, bop, bop. I know the answer. <laughs> and you can rate me on my answers with one, two, or three. <laughs> so first of all, my first thought is when a child needs to vocally stem in an environment, then they are trying to regulate so they can actually stay in the environment. I repeat. 
when a child is vocally stimming or any stim is the coping strategy, the regulatory self-regulation. Everybody keeps saying, I want my child to self-regulate, but when they self-regulate, nobody wants them to self-regulate in the way they need to self-regulate, which for this particular child is vocal stimming. She's self-regulating so she can sit in that church with all of the stuff going on and all of the sensory overload that she has to process. So number one, this is my big pet peeve. If you are part of a church community and your church community is not embracing, understanding, and having accommodations for any child person with a disability, then there's a problem. There's a problem. There's a problem. Oh, they're evangelicals. They, they ain't accommodating shit. These Fine. are people who think can pray, you can pray the gay away. There's a problem. So um, what I would recommend to the mom is um, we cannot expect the entire um, environment, the entire congregation to process the vocal stems. So you have one or two choices. One, ah, don't bring your kiddo to church. Two, ask your church for the room where you go with newborn crying babies. Cause there's usually crying rooms in a church for people who have newborns so that the it's soundproof, it's glass. You can see the whole service. Um, so that it doesn't, you know, babies cry. Right. And then it you says here that they try that the Reverend is insisting that a seven year old girl should be able to sit quietly in church. Right. So and the mom either... feels so shamed that she won't stand up to him. Well, then they will have to listen to her stem or they have to change churches. Those are your two choices. You either accommodate, put up with the, the verbal stem or pick a new church. That's it. The reason I brought that one up is because yeah. unfortunately that is an issue you have. If you're autistic and you're born in a very religious household, mm -hmm. I don't mean to pick on evangelicals. Just I know some people who are autistic who come from an evangelical households. So mm -hmm. I have particular ire towards that yeah. community for a whole host of reasons that's one of them mm -hmm. but any sort of extreme religious community there's so little flexibility and the consequences for changing church means getting alienated from your entire community and your family and likely having to move mm -hmm. and i wanted to highlight that because it's a really rough situation but a situation a lot of autistic people are going through and autistic parents yes it's it's similar it's 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 no different i don't think it's any different in regards to family pressure and expectations at things that, you know, people have lots of family traditions, lots of, I have parents who are like, well, you know, this is part of our family culture. We go to these events and we have to wear this garment, right? Your child cannot tolerate the material. So you listen to them scream during the activity or you don't let them wear the garment. Now I will say there are some things the parent could do. You can give them 90 minutes to two hours of really good, intense regulation activities before you go to church right? So that their utmost regulation. Um, sometimes visual supports can help. Sometimes putting headphones and letting them do technology helps them to just sort of stay there next to you and not needing to verbally stem. So there are ways that you can bring things um, to keep the child um, uh, in terms should of you, sitting. If it's you. a garment issue, for example, should you just get them used to wearing a garment for longer periods of time? I do not find it necessary to force anyone to wear any clothes or eat any food that is sensory um, aversive or feels Sounds very like uncomfortable it. because what we have to remember is when a child is wearing something that is difficult for them to process, they're not going to be able to do anything that you ask them or communicate efficiently because they're so busy attending to their sensory system to process that sensory input from the tag or the socks or I don't know, whatever it is that we have to wear that mm, you're not going to get much in terms but of what will people think of me? Well, people can think whatever they want. And that's where parents have to grow. And I say it's a journey. You have to grow into your advocating savvy. And that looks different for everyone. And like I said before, there are some parents who have told me, I cannot do that. I do not have the capability to do that. I am very mild mannered. I don't even advocate for myself. And there's nothing I can do about that. It is just, everybody's going to have to be you're, you're, you're such a good person because there'd be no way someone could tell that to my face and me not immediately call them a pussy. There's, there's just no, I, it would it'd be like I had Tourette's. It'd just come out of me like, you're a pussy. 
Like I, I just wouldn't be able to do it. So you are so patient and mild mannered. You, you, you're like you're like a nun. I, I, you have the patience of Job. I don't know how you do it. My mom says it all the time. It's really funny. And it's not that I don't get frustrated. I mean, I would love for parents to say, "This is my child." I mean, it breaks my heart when parents don't advocate for their kids. But I've learned that I, my dad said, "You can't save all of them, Stacy." And I said, "Well, I'm darn skippy going to try." I can't Daddy. advocate for my. Let's get to the next one. Okay, before I go on a freaking rant. So these are some bonus case studies where oh, I'm no, going to get bonus. a little... I feel these are still important because these are actual issues, but this Ooh. is the, this this is where I get to be a little woke. You know I love getting woke. Oh my gosh. All but right, these ready. are some actual, actual issues that autistic people face and autistic children face. But if you're... If you don't share my political sense of humor, let's say... Mm-hmm. Feel free to to cut this off now. I'm just giving you a warning. I'm I'm just warning you. You ready, Stacy? Yes, I'm ready. I'm ready. So we have we have two of these to finish out the episode. So here's okay. the first one. I'm ready. Autistic adolescent male, 14. Actually, these are both adult. These are both no. One's an adolescent male. One's an adolescent female because we've been doing mostly little kids. So there's an adolescent male, fully verbal, echolalia. You know what I'm trying to say. I have totally pronounced mm-hmm. the word. Has become an issue. Mom notices her son incessantly repeating various phrases from former President Donald Trump, such as, it's just the flu and the oranges, the oranges. <laughs> she believes he picked this habit up from his father, who has been complaining about Hillary's emails for the past six years. <laughs> father is not concerned with echolalia. If any, hey, I say it right. If anything, he encourages it and often repeats similar words and phrases. Son's echolalia, I got it right again, is leading to bullying at school. He's He attends public school inclusion. So what would you do for that? How old is the child? 14, or uh, adolescent male. Okay. All right. So 14-year-old... Um, well, one, you know, you can't really... It's hard to stop your child from doing something that you're doing as a parent, if you are modeling something. So if dad's doing it, then there's no way to really stop the kid from doing it. Yeah, um, and the dad ain't going to stop because I, I believe it says he's been bitching about Hillary's emails for six years. Clearly, clearly he's, he, he's never going to stop. Move forward. All right. Um, I try to tell parents and remind them, you know, children repeat what we say at home. However, in order to help him maybe without doing it in public so that there are problems for him, I would probably approach it from what I call a strategic social story concept. So my strategic social story concept for kids who are teens, young adults is um, not so much a social story that says, this is what you do when you're with friends and this is what you don't do. Um, An example, I may sit with the child, mother could sit with the child and write down the phrases that they say. And then you sometimes I will recommend you get like a poster board or a dry erase board, you make a line down the middle, and then you put things we can say at school, things we can't say at school. And let's say that we type up all the quotes that he echoes that are getting him bullied because he's saying these things that are very highly politically charging, emotionally charging. And you go through and let's say there's one comment and then you and the child and you say, well, which section do you think this is something we say at school or something that we don't say at school? Now you do that, but at the same time, when you're going through this process and they're going to choose maybe not the correct, they may say, oh, you can say them all at school. That's when you bring out. So what is it that's frustrating you at school? Is it bullying? Do you, do you, how do you feel? Not how do you feel, but you know, those are the things that are really frustrating you. Do you want the bullying to stop? So you find something that is already internally motivating. It could be, they don't care about the bullying, but they want to join the chess club. Well, if you want to join the chess club, the chess club doesn't appreciate these comments. So you have to make a decision and we have to come up with a plan as to how to get you to not make these comments because you want to get into the chess club. So for older kids, you have to find what they're already internally motivated for to help them shift a behavior that they're doing in a setting they shouldn't do it in so that they can make the connection and that internal motivation is going to help them 
achieve it much quicker. The external motivation I find is only a temporary patch. Like if you say, oh, if you do this, you know, blah, 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 well, then you have to keep giving prizes for the rest of their lives because they're not really committed themselves. They're just doing it because you want them to do it. So you have to find a reason to connect for them to be motivated to work on the strategy to minimize that. Um, and that is a way you can stop it in the school. And then there's all kinds of ways that I could come up with. I'm thinking of, um, you know, there are some kids that I know who like to say cuss words. So for those kids who like to say cuss words, I used to have a cuss word area and they could go to the cuss word area and they could cuss all the words they wanted and do as much cussing as they wanted. And then they come back to the area where everyone is and everybody's happy because sometimes you need to say a lot of cuss words and I get it. Sometimes you need to say it. So I, I definitely, uh, we did things like that when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And the reason I brought this up besides just take the piss is because echolalia actually is an issue for especially older can be an issue for older teens. And the reason I brought this up again, besides to take the piss is because one of the many reasons I hate Donald Trump is, and one of the many reasons he was successful is he comped these quick catchphrases yes. that were memorable. Yes. And I, they kept getting stuck in my head because I yeah. have that issue. So I started repeating the stuff he said, even though I don't like him. Yes. By the way, I, I, I'm not a supporter of Hillary. I just thought demonstrating a, the father is still complaining about Hillary's emails, a good way to get across that the father is very mentally rigid. Yes. And yes. very inflexible and hung yes. up on things himself. That's why I put that in there. Yes. Um, yeah. So he would say things like at one point, the oranges, he was trying to say that he was looking for the origins of a report and he, because Trump has issues pronouncing stuff. Mm -hmm. So he kept saying the oranges instead of stopping. He just tried to push through. So he was like, the oranges, the oranges. And for a week, all I could think of, and all I could, I just kept randomly saying, luckily I've learned not to do this in public, but at home, I'd just be like rambling, the oranges, the oranges. It was awful. Yeah. Or like just the flu and things like that. So yeah, screw him for that. For, for a whole bunch of other reasons too, but screw him for that because he's definitely made my echolalia worse. That's why I brought that up. But for an adolescent, that can be a problem. As I've mentioned before, uh, I knew kids in my school who would say randomly racist stuff. Mm -hmm. I was one of those kids, by the way. Like, I gotten into some trouble for, because I thought how you made friends, I think I've talked about this before, how you made friends was you just go up to them and you say racist shit. Because yep. the only friend I had at the time was vehemently racist, like openly racist. Uh -huh. And my father was pretty racist. Like, really bad level racist. So that's all I knew. So I just say bigoted stuff. I thought that's just what you say. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't the only one. So there was a lot of bigotry going around for kids who didn't know better. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the reasons that I use this politically charged uh, case study. But let's get on to the last one because we're reaching the time period where we try to keep the high cast cap between 45 minutes an hour, or as you know, a long trip to the bathroom. This one is going to get called political. In my opinion, this is based off a true story. This case study shouldn't be political, in my opinion, but it's going to get called political, So, and it's going to get called woke, even though, in my opinion, it's not. Just give you a fair warning. So this is an autistic female, 16. No, autistic male. Autistic male. I can't read. Autistic male, 16. Fully verbal. So similar to the other one. Mom reports issues with loud noises and disrespect. Namely, son has developed the habit of blowing an air horn every time mom or dad refers to his transgender sister as being at, by their birth names of the name they've chosen for themselves. Basically, uh, this particular patient, for lack of a better word, their sister is transgender. She's a transgender uh, girl. Mm -hmm. And the mom isn't very accepting of it. So the mom insists on calling her by her actual name even though it's not the girl wants to be called. So what this kid is doing is he bore an air horn and he blows the air horn every time the mom uses the wrong name. When the mom confronted the son about using the air horn, he said, and I quote, if you can act like a bigot, I can act like an asshole. There you go. Mom and dad want their son to be more obedient and considerate to their feelings. What would you do for this family? Um, I would probably go on Amazon and order the Sunmore air horns. 
That's based off true story, by the way. I read it yesterday. Autistic typing was talking about there was a sibling who would blow an air horn every time the parent. That's how he trained the parents to remember their kid's uh, uh, new name. Yeah. Is every time he messed up, he'd blow an air horn. So it and sounds through, like the and child... And through social condition and through conditioning, they remembered it because they hated the sound of the air horn. Yeah. So the child used ABA on the parents. Basically. I didn't think yeah. of it that way, but basically that's essentially what happened. And it worked, evidently. And I love that a sibling was advocating for another sibling. So I don't think there's autistic any... people can be very protective of their siblings. Of when, I, when I read that, I think of my friend Henry, who's been on the podcast, mm-hmm. who he's very shy. He had issues standing up to his father, mm-hmm. unless he's the oldest, unless involved his siblings. He was very protective of his siblings. Mm-hmm. So protective. It actually didn't line up with how his personality was, where he was very mild mannered. He didn't stand up for himself. Until he was already like middle twenties, but he would even as a kid, he'd stand up for his younger siblings. Mm-hmm. So when I saw that, I thought about that. I'm like, I have to make that case study, even though people are gonna say I'm being political, even though I'm not, because I believe like thirty, I believe seventy percent of autistic people identify as LGBT, thirty mm-hmm. percent of them identify as being trans. So yeah. this isn't actually me being political. Uh, it's an actual issue facing a lot of autistic people and their siblings. But yeah, uh, they want to know how they can make the kid more considerate to their feelings because they find the air horn to be very annoying. And it should be because the parents are being very annoying and disrespectful to the daughter. So clearly this is one of those case studies where the issue is the parent, not the kid. But once again, what do you do with a parent who parents, and it's a mom and dad this time. So it's both parents who don't understand because they're struggling to understand why the kid is being so disobedient, even though the kids kind of sort of explained it to them. Oh, okay. How do you get it through their heads? Yeah, I would actually just help them understand that. Do you not recognize that this is an autistic individual that is actually empathizing and being a great brother to his sibling and everybody wants autistic kids to have relationships and socially engage? Well, he is doing that for his sister. And so... He, I would help them understand that what the brother is doing is actually a beautiful thing in terms of protecting his sister and that what is going on and how can I help you? What resources can I help you so that you can respect that? Um, And really, if they just call her by the name that she has provided for them, then you could really minimize and we would have no more air horn because then there would be no need for the ABA to come from the child. See, at this point, they've probably called you woke and to- and like told you the F off. Um, no, no, no. I, you know, I have to say, Torin, and I don't know, I am, my, and, and all my listeners who have worked with me or, you know, if you've heard me speak before, I am very honest and transparent with parents. Now, I'm not an, an, a, a jerk to parents. I would hope that I wasn't. But I, I have given parents very, very straightforward, honest feedback about what they need to do and how it is their accountability that is um, the problem. And they still call me back. They still come to the table. It's like they want someone, someone it's almost like they need someone to help them see that it needs to be addressed differently. I mean, I'm, I don't know if there's anyone who's never called me back, but there are parents that I, I'm like, I can't believe they're still talking to me. I was blatantly honest with them about what they were doing wrong. Um, and I mean, I had a mom who said she did something and she says, you know, I feel so guilty. And I said, and you should, that was very, very, very bad decision for five years that you did for your child. And you knew that it was not working and you did not have the ability to stand up for him. And yeah, it's, it's bad mommy. That was, I understand the guilt as a mom. I get it. When we make mistakes, I said, but that was a big one. Like your child now has significant um, mental health challenges because of it. And so, yes. So you need to go to counseling to deal with that so that you don't hold on to the guilt and you can move forward and, and move back and move on to healing and help your child get in a situation that works better. Because that's the reality. And I think sometimes, Torin, I'm, and, you know, I'm a, a parent, so I understand parenting's hard, right? And I also understand that parents of autistic children are not told anything except go get ABA. They don't tell them anything else. They don't tell them what autism is. They don't tell them about communication. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that basically uh, in the case study, which, like I said, it's based off real life thing. The sibling used ABA on the parents. because. Yeah. Yeah, technically, they say ABA works. 
Yeah, that worked too. Mm -hmm. They stopped messing up the name after a while because they were sick of listening to the air horn. And mm -hmm. autistic people are meticulous. Yes. So I, I can guarantee that kid carried the air horn around with him. Autistic type didn't mention this is a boy or girl. I'm assuming it's a dude. This is a teenage dude would a teenage autistic dude would totally do this. This is a very autistic boy thing to do. To carry an air horn around every single time they screwed up to yeah. blow that air horn. So it worked, but it worked because it was so jarring and annoying mm -hmm. that it sort of conditioned them to if they didn't want to hear the air horn. There were better, there are probably better ways to do that. There are just like there are better ways to help your autistic child have, I don't want to say better behaviors, but be able to go about the world in more appropriate ways. There are some things that are just strap inappropriate, inappropriate. So there are better ways to do that, such as occupational speech therapy, et cetera, sensory enrichment therapy, which you offer, than ABA. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad I didn't think of that, but I'm glad you mentioned that. Because that's a perfect example of why ABA is bad. Because just because something works doesn't mean it's good or should be done. Yes. Like I can lose weight just by not eating and snorting coke. It doesn't mean it's good. That's true. That is very true. But you would lose weight. Yeah, exactly. I, it, it, it wore, I mean, then it you'd have work. to spend a lot of money on cocaine. Ah, you don't have to spend it on food. Spend it on. <laughs> it's like one one priorities. It's like when people were making one one. I hate to bring it back to this. But when uh, President Trump made the comment about the bleach and people were saying and people were making fun of him, basically, one person said the uh, Trump teeny, which is like one part's vodka, one part's tied bleach. I, it's like I think, it, I think it, cure, was... it will cure COVID yeah. because you'll be dead. It's sort I, of like I, that. Like because something well, works, remember doesn't when mean they it's said good. bleach enemas for autistic kids. You know, there's a doctor. Wait, that, what? I'm sorry. What? Repeat that. Bleach enemas for autistic kids. Oh, yes. You didn't know about what, that? Well, what's a bleach enema? You take bleach. It's like an enema where you like your enema. An enema is when you insert something into someone's anal. Like a suppository. Yes. But you, so instead of putting liquid, you use bleach. And so bleach are, suppository. Is that safe? Uh, no, we do not put bleach inside <laughs> our bodies. And certainly not to cure autism. But there is a doctor in, um, I think, South Africa who did a whole study and says we should use bleach. And people started actually doing it. This is why it's so hard for me to be sarcastic. Yeah. Because there's always someone who does something crazy. Like, that is worse than any and, of the, like, yeah. doctor lip shits and people believe or, it like, like any of the, the lip shits it's like crazy. that sounds like a lip shits ad yeah yep. like that's like i couldn't even come up with that because that's so insane yeah because i in fact i wouldn't do that because even if i said i was being sarcastic there's a chance people would actually do that so i wouldn't risk i whenever i do lip shits ads i always do something that's so insane it's always yeah. something that doesn't exist because i don't want people to actually try it because there always is that one asshole that goes "Ooh, maybe i should try that there are several people who thought that they who put bleach to and it makes me so sad There's people who drank so bleach cure covid too um but wanted to, to, to get back on topic not really because what i'm about to say is there's always keto that's what i've heard that's what i've heard where did i know this is off topic but we're about to go but real quick where did that come from since yeah. we're talking about intolerant parents i think that um you know in, in regards to parents, because they're not told what autism is, because the schools put pressure, because family puts pressure, because society puts pressure, sometimes parents are just looking for anything that they can do that they feel that they're doing something, right? So even though the keto diet doesn't cure autism, sometimes parents need to feel like they have some control over something. So doing a gluten-free diet or a keto diet makes them feel like they're doing something because you don't have control over the fact that your child has a diagnosis. Um, so I think a lot of it is marketing people come up with stuff and people buy it i mean i'm so over the tylenol commercials on tv and the radio on facebook i'm so over the big push for did you get tylenol when you were pregnant and your child has autism stop tylenol. yeah I, saw, stop. I, I remember seeing one of those a few days stop. it is just over and it's we're inundated with them they're everywhere um so people human nature and especially when you're a parent and you want to fix something that you don't understand but you want to fix it because 
fixing it makes it easier, right? It makes it easier. People won't stare at you. Your child won't have struggles, whatever it is that people think. So people just, you know, buy into it. It's like, there's all kinds of stuff on. I mean, if you go on internet, there's all kinds of stuff. There's some lady who's swears. If you take her supplement, there's another guy who says, if you take this thing that I give, then your child will speak fluently in two weeks. I mean, really? What, what is that about? But people latch on to it. My, because... my, my brain's still broken from the bleach suppository. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's just. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think uh, we should probably get out of here. We're up against the hour mark. And yeah. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Comment below. We want us to do it again. Uh, I promise next time I won't add some woke stuff. Oh, I didn't have my final, my final, my final words. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's okay. Go, go it's forward. been a while. My final words are for all of the listeners. If you gained nothing else from all of our discussions, um, I would like for you to walk away, listen away. <laughs> I don't know what the term is. I would like for you to end this podcast feeling like there's always a solution. There's always a strategy. There's always something that we can come up with. We just have to have the right person to help us problem solve it. Um, but there's always, I just fully believe there's always something we can do to make an accommodation or an adjustment to make it easier for our children, which brings less chaos to our family. So those are my final words. And my final words are if your kid's blowing an air horn, it's probably because you're being a douchebag. <laughs> And um, Stacy, that's why we're working to shift the narrative on everything autism. That's why see, we're here. See ya. Bye.